Amen. Well, thank you, worship team. And I want to invite you today to turn with me in your Bible to Psalm 76. Psalm 76. And as you do that, uh, we're going to just take a moment to be still before the Lord and invite Him uh, to speak to us today. So let's just take a moment of silence now. Oh, gracious God, we invite you now to speak to us through your word. Uh, Lord, we acknowledge that listening is something that uh, we struggle with. And sitting still is something we grow struggle, we really struggle with. And uh, Lord, we're just, we're conditioned in our culture to, to run and run fast all the time. And uh, we're conditioned to pretend that we know everything, that we have every answer, that we are all sufficient in and of ourselves. And we thank you that we can come before you and just lay that all down and say it's not true. Uh, Lord, actually, we're not all powerful. Uh, we're tired. And we don't have all the answers. Lord, sometimes it's frightening how little we know. But we can come to you now and we can hear from the God who made us, the God who, who loves us, the God who is never tired, the God who is never short on answers, the God who really is all-knowing and all-powerful and all-present. You're with us. You're here. You promise us that as we look to your word, as your word goes forth, it will not return void. You tell us that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. And so we're coming today and we're placing our feet by, by your grace and with the help of your spirit, we're place, placing our feet on the rock and we're hearing the truth and that's what we need. So help us. And uh, Lord, grow in us an expectation right now, I pray. Uh, Lord, I pray that you, you give us faith to believe that you're going to do what only you can do. We ask that in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Psalm 76. You haven't turned there already in your Bible. Look there with me now. A few weeks ago, I, I referenced a quote by A.W. Tozer. Um, and I'm going to go back to that quote right now because it's a really helpful quote. And I think it prepares us to see what we need to see in the text today. Uh, Tozer said, the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think of God. I got the quote wrong, but that's the gist of it. It's the most important thing about you, what comes into your mind when you think about God. And as I say that quote, and, and perhaps even you're nodding along with me, I am going to hazard a guess that for many of us, we don't believe that that quote is true. That seems like a bit of an over-exaggeration. Uh, that's unimportant thing, but there are lots of important things about me. And I would put forward to you this morning that, that, in fact, it really is the most important thing about you. What you believe about God shapes every aspect of your life. And as I was preparing this morning, I was just thinking about the times that we fall short. Just as an example, think about the times that we stumble back into sin. And we counsel one another or we think about next steps. And, and I would argue that this is one of the steps that we, we rarely visit so the, the young man who's struggling with pornography or, or the marriage that is constantly in a battle of resentment and unforgiveness. These, these sins that are perpetually repeating themselves in our lives. You know, we come and we, we look at that sin and it's complex to be sure. And we ask questions like, like maybe I need to put some, some things in place to, to keep the sin far from me. Or we think about maybe I need to work on the relationships in my life. Or maybe I need to revisit just the, the gospel and understanding God's grace to me. And every, every piece of that is hugely important. 
But rarely do we stop and say, maybe I need to behold God and think about my understanding of Him. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe my marriage is, is in crisis because I have a deficient view of God. Our minds rarely go there. And yet, isn't it true that, that if we had a right view of God, that would affect the things that we do in the dark when we think no one's watching? If we had a correct view of God, that would shape the way that we speak to each other and about each other. If we had a correct view of God, that would, that would speak into the thoughts that we cultivate in our minds. Who is He? You know, if, if you were to stop right now and to, and to picture Him in your mind, what comes into your mind when you think about God? There are probably some people in this room, when you think about God, you think of He is a mythical fairy tale that weak people need to get through this difficult life. That's going to shape your life. There are some people here today, when you think about God, he is, He's essentially a genie who wants to make me happy and if I, if I say the right things and do the right things, then he'll, he'll make my life fantastic. Or there are some people here today, and God is he's essentially like my, my own personal therapist. And when life gets hard, I come to him, and he coddles me and consoles me and makes me feel better. Or maybe he's the self-righteous God of the Pharisees, who's keeping a tally and always patting you on the back for being better than the rest. Or maybe he's the ever-conforming to the culture God of the people-pleaser. Or maybe, and this is the most common version, maybe he's the God who just so happens to look and think and behave exactly like you. What comes into your mind when you think about God? Who is he? And where do you learn about him? So if that is the most important thing about me, then where do I go to learn who he is? In uh, Romans chapter 1, he talks about how we, actually, we can learn some things about God in nature. Um, but not enough. We can learn some things in nature. We, we look out at nature, we see that, wow, he's, he's powerful, and he, he exists, right? He's creator. But that's not enough to, to shape our understanding of him. That's just enough to condemn us when we stand before him. Romans 1 says that there's not a single person in this room who one day when they stand before God will be able to say, well, I didn't know there was a God. Oh, no, actually the sunrise and the sunset and the baby in your arms, that, that evidence right there took that off the table for you. We all know there's a God. But then how do we learn more about him? Right here. The word of God. This is where we go to learn more about who he is. And you might say, well, well, Jesus is the word made flesh. And so that's the place where God has most fully revealed himself to us. And absolutely that's true. But where do we go to learn about Jesus? This is the place where God reveals himself to his people. Therefore, if we want to live rightly and we want to know him rightly, we must be a people who value his word. So here's, if you're listening right now, if the only time in your week when you open your Bible is Sunday morning at 10.30-ish a.m., if this is the only time in your week when you're opening your Bible, that is a problem for your soul. Your life will not look the way that it should if this is the only time that you're beholding God. So please hear that. We need to be a people of the Word, a people who are constantly shaped by Him, a people who are seeing Him in the text. We need to read broadly, Old Testament, New Testament. Hear this. If you're here today and your version of, of studying God's Word means that you know, you'll read you know, one book in the New Testament and that's, you stay there or, or you, you stay in the Psalms. If you're not reading broadly, then you're not going to get an accurate picture of who He is. We must be a people who read broadly, who read deeply, a people who resolve never to skip the parts in the Bible that, that challenge our preconceptions of who God is. 
a people who long to see him more. And I say all of that for our introduction because Psalm 76 is an interesting psalm that, that challenges some of our cultural preconceptions about God. As we look to Psalm 76, I'm going to hazard a guess that the God that is worshipped in Psalm 76 is going to feel foreign to some of us. Because the, the God of Psalm 76 is a fierce God. The God of Psalm 76 is a God who executes judgment on his enemies. In fact, the God of Psalm 76 is a frightening God. And so as we come to this text, if you find yourself challenged by the God that the psalmist is worshiping, I want, you to, I want to challenge you now by the power of the Spirit to humble yourself and to behold your God for all of who he is. That said, look with me now. If we want to live rightly, we need to know him rightly. And if we would know him rightly, we need him to reveal himself to us through his word. So hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living, active word to us today. Psalm 76. To the choir master, with stringed instruments, a psalm of Asaph, a song. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Selah. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. Selah. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in his helpful commentary on this psalm, Alec Machir titled it, To Know is to Fear. I think that's a helpful summary of what we find here. In Psalm 76, we're confronted with a warrior God. A God who strikes down armies and who makes the the kings of the earth tremble. In fact, if you were paying attention, that, that word fear is the prominent theme in the psalm, isn't it? This is a frightening God, the psalmist says. But here's what's fascinating. As the psalmist talks about this frightening God, he's not begrudging or bemoaning this reality. He is delighting in it. He's delighting in a frightening God. Now, I don't pretend to be a spokesman for my generation. At least I shouldn't. If I ever do, forgive me. I am the spokesman for one person in my generation. That's me. But one observation that that I would make is that in in my generation, we have all but lost the fear of the Lord. This isn't isn't a theme for us. This isn't something that we think about. You know, I, I suspect that some of you even now, when I talk about how God is to be feared, some of you even now find yourself bristling internally. There's something about you that feels a little bit uneasy about this. 
We celebrate his love, and we should, by the way. But we diminish his holiness. We turn up the dial on his grace, but we attempt to mute his justice. And if you don't believe me, just do a quick survey of the top 100 worship songs in North America today. And you'll see this to be true. We've neglected the holiness of God, and in doing so, we have, we have forgotten how to tremble. And that is terribly dangerous because Proverbs 9.10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So here in Psalm 76, the psalmist is delighting delighting in a frightening God. A a warrior God. A God who overcomes the enemies of His people. And the psalmist is, is delighting in it because he sees that that is exactly the God that we need. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to We're going to work through this psalm that maybe challenges some of our preconceived ideas. We're going to survey the psalm, and then having done that, we're going to make a resolution moving forward. Very simple outline. So first, we're going to survey the psalm. We're going to just break it into two parts. Again, very simple. Two halves. In the first half, what we find is a victory in the past. And so in the first six verses, the psalmist is describing a scene that's already happened. And we know this is true because if you look at the verbs in the first six verses, it's all past tense. So in verse 3... There he broke the flashing arrows. In verse 5, the stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank. Not they will sink, but they already sank into sleep. Verse 6, at your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. So this is a victory that has happened already in the past. And he's delighting in it. Now he's vague in his references, and I believe that that's intentional because the Psalms are meant to be used for us moving forward. So he, he wrote this psalm in such a way that we could sing this after any of God's victories. But all the commentators agree that the details that he points out here most certainly refer back to God's victory over Assyria. So I want to briefly bring you up to speed on that story. Many of you are familiar with this. But if you're not, God's victory over Assyria was one of the great victories in the Old Testament. Assyria was, at the time that they attacked Jerusalem, the most powerful army on the planet. And they had just wiped out all of the northern tribes of Israel. So you've got the 12 tribes, and all of the northern tribes have been decimated by Assyria. The survivors have scattered abroad. And Assyria now it surrounds the city Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom. And this army is ferocious, led by King Sennacherib. They were, well, how do you describe them? They were terrorists, I think would be a fair word. So they would, they would impale their prisoners on poles and they would put them on the road so that anybody who walked by those roads would see that this is what happens if you oppose Assyria. Um, they would cut open pregnant women. They would do all kinds of things that we're not going to talk about today because it's vulgar, but it's, they were a living, breathing nightmare. That's what you should know. The most powerful army on the planet, a living, breathing nightmare. They just wiped out all of our family in the north and they've now surrounded Jerusalem. And so you've got these families, moms and dads with their little ones, trembling in Jerusalem. And as they're trembling in Jerusalem, outside of the walls, there's this living, breathing nightmare, and they're shouting over the walls, taunting the people of God. And so one of their taunts, we find it in 2 Kings 19. Let me read this to you. I'm going to start at verse 10. I think you have starting at verse 11 on the screen. They said, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you 
by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you've heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. (laughs) Shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations that my fathers destroyed? Gazan and Haran, Rezif and the people of Eden, who were in Talisar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, the king of Hina, or the king of Iva? So they're, at this point, they're, just, they're mocking and taunting the Israelites. They're saying, listen, you, uh, you maybe, maybe you're feeling confident in there because your God tells you you're going to be okay, but guess what? So did his God. Do you see him on the pole over there? We know how this story ends, Israel. So they're shouting over the walls. But it's not wise to mock God. As the author of the Hebrews warns, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But the Assyrians had no fear of the living God. And in their arrogance, they put God to the test. A test that they would pay for with their lives. So within the walls of Jerusalem, the people are terrified and they're huddled together with their families. And so what do they do? They cry out to God. They cry out. They repent because they have sinned and fallen short. Absolutely. They're not a sinless people. God is not going to rescue them because of how awesome they are. They're not awesome. They're sinners. Just like every other nation that was struck down. But they cry out. They repent for their sins. And they invite God to please deliver us somehow, some way, from the most powerful army on the planet. And they went to sleep. But God did not sleep. In 2 Kings 19, verse 35, we read what happened that night. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. So they have this tremendous victory. And I don't want to rush past it because sometimes when we read our Bible, you know, we rush through these details. We think, well, well, what a deliverance. They looked out and there were 185 dead bodies. 185 people that God killed. 185,000 people that God killed. 185,000 sons of mothers. Here's a question. Is the God of your imagination a God who would strike down an entire army for their their pride and their sin? Because the God of the Bible is. And the author of Psalm 76 doesn't blush at this detail, nor does he explain it away. Rather, he delights in his powerful, terrifying God who brings justice in a broken world. Listen again. I want to read verses 1-6 to again. Now that we've got that story in the back of our minds, listen here to the psalmist. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem. His dwelling place is in Zion. There He broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, the weapons of war. Glorious are you! More majestic than the mountains full of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. Glorious are you, he says. It is good news that we serve a frightening God. 
And it is good news that He is here with us. And it is good news that He is just. And that He takes up the cause of the oppressed. Our God is a terrifying God. And that is very good news. That is not the the kind of song that we sing in our corporate worship, is it? That's not the way that we think about our God, is it? But that is the God that we see here. That's the God the psalmist is worshiping. I'm going to do something that I might regret. I'm going to quote a children's book. Um, I often reference, if, if you're a parent here and your kids have never read the Chronicles of Narnia series, you should. It is fantastic. Read it with them. If you don't have kids, read it anyways. Um, honestly, the illustrations are just profound and beautiful. Written by C.S. Lewis, Aslan represents Christ. He's this terrific lion, defends his people. And here in this scene, the characters, they've never met Aslan. They're in Narnia. Everything's a mess. The world is just going, it's a disaster. And they're meeting with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, which, again, feels a bit funny as we prepare to read this. But Mr. and Mrs. Beaver start to bring them up to speed in terms of Aslan. Because Mr. and Mrs. Beaver have got some confidence, and the kids are wondering, where does this come from? So they ask, is, is he a man? Asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie. And no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. We worship a God who, I think sometimes we try to manufacture into this safe, tame God. Far too many of us have traded out the God of the Scriptures for a safe God. The Assyrians made the mistake of assuming that the God of Israel was a safe God. And the psalmist in Psalm 76 is here delighting in the reality that our God is not a safe God. But He is good. Our enemies surrounded us. And they mocked us. And they roared over the walls at us and at our children. But in their careless arrogance, they awoke the Lion of Judah. And they did not live to make that mistake again. So he draws confidence from a victory in the past, in the first half of the psalm. But then in the second half of the psalm, what we find is a confidence for the future. Look there with me now. So he's just recounted all that's happened. And he says, but you, you're to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth, surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. So as the psalmist 
looks back and considers looking out and seeing 185,000 slain soldiers as he reflects on how the most powerful king on the planet was silenced in a night. He was filled with a great confidence for the future. The psalmist says, God doesn't change. Who is going to stand before our God when he rises up against his foe? Justice will rain down. The humble will be lifted up. God has already done it. So God will do it. You can count on it. That's what Psalm 76 is declaring. And in verse 10, I want to draw your attention to verse 10. This is a special verse. The psalmist declares with confidence that even the wrath of man shall praise you. I wonder, what does that mean? Let's think about it. The psalmist is saying with great confidence that even the vile, wicked, malicious, Wrath of humanity cannot thwart the will of God. In fact, all of that will be used to demonstrate His glory. Rebellion will be transformed to praise. And if you read your Bible broadly, then you see that this theme recurs time and time again. Consider Joseph, for example. Joseph's brothers acted out of a petty, wicked wrath when they seized their brother and they threw him into a pit. And then they pulled him out of a pit and they sold him into slavery. However, their sin was merely an instrument that God used to further his redemptive purposes in the world, which is exactly what Joseph said when he confronted his brothers later in life. He told them, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You were doing wrath, God was doing glory. And we find this same juxtaposition between the wrath of man and yet the glory of God going hand in hand. We see the same juxtaposition in Acts chapter 2. When we jump back into Acts in September, we're going to jump right into Peter's sermon. And in his sermon, he's looking out over the Israelites and he says to them, this Jesus delivered up according to the, the definite plan of foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Peter says, it was God's definite plan. So God, this was God's plan. And nevertheless, you sinned. You crucified him. You did this. It was this same confidence in the sovereignty of God holding together every aspect of, of our lives. That It was that confidence that led the Apostle Paul to write this verse that so many people have memorized, Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And Paul could say that, inspired by the Holy Spirit, because that is the consistent testimony of the Word of God. Our God is completely and entirely in control. Joseph, Peter, Paul, they're all saying the same thing that the psalmist is declaring in this passage. Even the wrath of man shall praise God. We know how this story ends. God's fiercest foes lash out against him, but their rebellion only serves to further his glory because his purposes can't be thwarted. His reign and his rule is never threatened. Every blow that the enemy delivers is a nail in his own coffin. And isn't that what happened at the cross? When he crucified the Son, he sealed his own demise. Isn't that what happens with the church? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The more the enemy lashes out against us, the more the Word of God goes forth in power. Our God is sovereign over every detail, and He can't lose. That's what the psalmist is seeing here. 
And I can understand why unbelievers hate this doctrine. And it's true, they do. Unbelievers hate this idea that God is in control of all of these things. They hate the doctrine because they hate our God. They don't want Him to be in control of all things. They want control. But what's confusing to me is that, that there are many Christians who resist this doctrine of God's sovereign control. And I don't, I don't understand that. There's, an, there's this fear that we somehow lose our freedom when we acknowledge that God's sovereign over all things. But actually... I'm happy to lay down whatever freedom I thought I had because our God is magnificent and there's no one else who I'd rather have holding the steering wheel than Him. And every time the sovereignty of God comes up in the Bible, it is always a source of comfort for us. It's never meant to be something that, that, we, have, that we have to endure, like, oh, no, God's in control. It's a, God's in control. William Plumer says it more, uh, what's the word, eloquently than I just did. What an unspeakable consolation to know that the permitted opposition of the church's bitterest enemies shall contribute to her good. That there is a voice which says to every invading foe, thus far shalt thou come and no farther. Praise God for that. God is completely, entirely in control of every single detail for all time. Therefore, when the king of Assyria thought that he could mock God's authority, he, he was wiped out overnight. Therefore, when, when Korah, you remember, and the sons of Korah tried to rebel against God's leader, Moses, the earth swallowed them up. Therefore, when Pharaoh thought that he could enslave the people of God, the sea swallowed them up. Therefore, when we go all the way back to the earliest pages and the devil himself as a serpent thinks that he can deceive the people of God and rob God of the glory of his people, God promises him, I'm going to send a son and he's going to crush your head. And as we flip into the New Testament, we see that death is swallowed up in victory. This is who our God is. This is what he does. These victories in the past give us confidence for the future. That's what the psalmist is seeing. He's fresh on the cusp of this tremendous victory and he has a tremendous confidence and with that confidence comes a reverence and an awe such that he can say in verses 11 to 12, make your vows to the Lord and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. Before I jump into our resolution, I just want to say a quick word. I mentioned off the top that maybe you're here and you you don't love him. You don't know him. And I, I want to be crystal clear that here in this story, there are those who are in Jerusalem who have received victory, and, but then there are, are those on the outside who in their sin and in their pride suffer the judgment for their sin and their pride. What's fascinating is there's sinners on both sides of the wall. Sinners in here who, have, who repent and put their trust in God. And sinners over here who stand up and say, I don't need your God. Who is your God? And they're struck down. And maybe you're here today and you're hearing all this news and you're hearing about how it's, it's amazing news that our God is a frightening God. But I want you to know, if you're outside of the wall, it is not amazing news that our God is a frightening God. If you're outside of the wall, Psalm 2 says, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish along the way. If you're not in right relationship with him, listen, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to, to bear your sin. That's the glory. You've heard about this in Easter time. God sent His Son because He loved the world. He, 
He loved you. He saw you in your sin and your rebellion. He heard all the things you said about Him. He saw the way you lived your life in opposition to Him. He saw you, and in His mercy and in His love, He sent His own Son to live the life you could never live. To to take upon Himself all of the sin that you accumulate in your life. Jesus took all of it. He took it all, and upon the cross, Jesus paid the death that we all deserve to pay. And the Bible says, whoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Just like the Israelites in the city, if we will repent, if we will turn our minds and our hearts away from our sin and towards our God, if we'll believe in Him, for them, they didn't see Jesus. They just believed, God, you're going to deliver us somehow. We see the deliverance. God, I believe that your plan is perfect, that there's salvation for me in Jesus Christ. If we repent and believe, then we're saved. We're brought into that safety and security. And then it is a, it's a glorious thing to know that God is, is frightening and powerful and in control. But I don't want to assume today that that's, that's good news for all of us. And so I'm just, I want to say that and I want to plead with you this morning to kiss the Son, to put your trust in Jesus Christ, lest you perish along the way. That wasn't in here, but I didn't want to fly past it. What is in here is a word to those of you who have put your trust in Christ. Those of you who can say, that it is your delight that God is powerful and mighty. And I want to make a resolution moving forward. A resolution for today. Here it is. Resolved. Fear God and nothing else. Listen. This world is a scary place. Isn't it? I get that. I see that. I mean, the Israelites, they were living in a nightmare. It was, that was, talk about frightening. They're, they're clutching their children, wondering... Is this it? Is this the last night that I lie sleeping holding my babies? The world is a frightening place. Sometimes you feel like you're living in a nightmare. Sometimes you feel like you're surrounded by a nightmare. There are monsters out there, to be sure. But listen, the king is in here. And he's the only one who's worthy of your fear. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He says that fear that you're feeling, you've you've directed it in all the wrong places. There's only one place where that fear should be directed. And until it's directed in the right place, your life isn't going to be what it ought to be. Think for a moment. What do you fear? And I'm like, really, think about it. What do you fear the most? The fear that shapes your life. Maybe it's a fear of embarrassment, always thinking about what people are thinking about you. Maybe it's a fear of not being able to provide for your family. You just you wonder, is there a day that's going to come when I'm going to come up short? My family's going to be in need. Maybe it's a fear of losing your loved ones. So you're always holding on to them just a little bit too tight. It causes lots of problems in your life. Maybe it's a fear of sickness. And so you, you just you struggle in crowds and you struggle with what you eat. And you, you, you're just always in this paranoia. Maybe it's just a fear of death. That the thought that all of this is going to come to an end and that you're just going to be done forever is, is crippling for you. What is the fear that shapes your life? Because the thing that you fear the most has more of an impact on your life than I think you understand. If we truly feared the Lord, that would change our lives. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, he says. If we truly feared the Lord, if if that fear was primary, then boy, there are an awful lot of things that we do in the dark that we wouldn't be doing anymore. If, If we feared Him more than anything else, 
there are a lot of things that we say to and about each other that we would never say again. If we truly feared him more than anything else, oh man, our lives, the the shape of our lives, the, the way that we speak to the world about Jesus would be entirely different. What is the fear that drives us? It's as if we've forgotten how this story ends. I want to flip ahead to Revelation 19 for a moment. And I welcome you to do that. It's the last book in your Bible, so I know you can find it quickly. I'm finding it too. So, Revelation 19. I want to read from verses 11 to the end of 16. As we think about Jesus, as we, as we picture Him in our mind, do we see this, this final scene? Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the King. He is the Lord. He will return and we will all give an account to him And that should shape us. And when we see Him at the trumpet's sound, and He rides in, and and we see Him as He is, not as who we imagine Him to be, all of the lesser things that we have feared will fall to the floor. And there will be one fear that dictates that moment. A fear of the living God. The psalmist looked back on, on the Lord's victory over Assyria, and it filled him with a great confidence in who His God is. But we have a victory that we look back on that far surpasses that, don't we? We we are able to look back at at not just the cross, but at the empty tomb. We're able to look back at the reality that our God conquered our greatest enemy. He conquered death itself. The grave cannot hold the people of God. Therefore, as we look back at that victory, how much more ought we to have the kind of confidence that causes the psalmist here to roar in in his trust in the Lord? We find this New Testament transposition of this in Romans chapter 8 where the Apostle Paul reflecting on on a victory in the past can look forward with great confidence and he says for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor heights nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord doesn't that sound like Psalm 76 it's just better we ought to be a people who, we're praying a better Psalm 76, but with the same unction and authority. I am sure, Paul says. Why are you sure, Paul? Because of how, how holy and righteous you are? Why are you sure, Paul? Because of your strength, your ability to hold on? Why are you sure? No, I am sure, Paul says, because I know who our God is and I know what He's done. Therefore, I know what he will do. And what I believe about God, what comes into my mind when I think about God is the most important thing about me, Paul says. He's sure because he knows that he belongs to a big, powerful, glorious, 
gracious, merciful, loving, frightening, holy God. A God who conquered death itself. So he is sure. And if you are here and you are in Christ, then you can have that assurance too. Even if the most terrifying nation on the planet is shouting at us through the walls. Even if Goliath is standing across the battlefield with a spear in his hand. Even if the devil himself is over there and he's trying to kick down the door, guess what? Let him come. Because whatever comes through those doors pales in comparison to the frightening God that is here in our midst. And he has got this. And he has got us. Let him come. Because the king is in here. And he's more frightening than anything else. Little children, 1 John 4, 4 as we conclude. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Therefore, resolved, fear God and absolutely nothing and no one else, Christian. Let's pray together. Oh, great God, we love you and we're so thankful that we get to hear from you, that we get to hear from your word. We're so thankful that we get to be shaped by your word. I'm so thankful that there's nobody here in this room who has you all figured out. Nobody here in this room who, who has seen every last glimpse, every last detail, put all the pieces together. Lord, and chief of which is right here in the pulpit, Lord. Day by day, we come to your word and we're seeing time and time again that you are far more than we ever imagined. And we learn about ourselves, Lord, as we look to your word. You reveal sin in us. Lord, I confess, as I've worked through this text, I see all of the misdirected fear in my life. And I'm thankful that it's been corrected by you. And Lord, I pray that that would be true for, for all of my brothers and sisters here in this room. That our fear would be directed in the right place that we would see and behold our glorious, powerful God and that we would trust you. I thank you that you're here with us. Lord, the Israelites delighted because you were there in Jerusalem, in Judah, in Salem. All of this is saying, he's here, he's with us. And we can say, oh, he's with us. He, he dwells in us by the power of his spirit. Because you are sons, the spirit of his son has been sent into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So if they could have confidence because God is in the city, oh, we have confidence because God is in each one of his people. And so we're going out into a frightening world today. Lord, we've got frightening challenges. We have, we've got income. We're not, we're not going to show what we're going to do for employment. We have marriages that feel like they're hanging on by a thread. We have kids that are wandering from the Lord. We have neighbors who don't want to hear anything about you. Lord, we have news from the doctor that we haven't yet processed. We have, there's, there's, there's monsters out there, Lord. It's frightening. It's a frightening world. You know what we face. And yet, God, in the midst of it all, you are with us. And that changes everything. So, Lord, let that change everything today for your people. Press that truth deep into our hearts. And if there's anyone here who does not yet know the confidence that comes, the peace that comes, in knowing that we are in right relationship with God, if there's anyone here who's in that place, let them see Christ today. Let them lay hold in faith. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Worship team, would you lead us?